Hello, and welcome to another episode of Justice Above All, a podcast from the Legal Defense Fund's Thurgood Marshall Institute. I'm your host, Ayubami Lanyanu, TMI Senior Research Fellow. On this episode, we're exploring how mental health, addiction, and homelessness intersect with our policing system. I want to take us back in time just a little bit to 2016, to an apartment in the Bronx, New York. Deborah Danner was a 66-year-old black woman who lived in Castle Hill. She had a documented history of schizophrenia and was active in her community's church ministries and other groups. On an evening in October 2016, neighbors called the police to her apartment when they thought she was acting erratically. When they arrived, Danner was in the throes of a mental health crisis. Police claimed that she was holding a pair of scissors that they talked her into putting down but that she later picked up a bat and swung at Sergeant Barry, who shot her twice, killing her. EMT Brittany Mullings, who was present at the scene, recounts the incident differently. She testified that she arrived before Barry and that Danner had already put the scissors down by the time the police showed up to the apartment. Her testimony indicates that police interrupted Danner's conversation with the EMTs, explaining why they were at her home, and that when Danner retreated to her bedroom, Sergeant Barry followed her and then two shots rang out through the apartment. The officer who shot Danner was acquitted of criminal charges and still works for the NYPD. Danner's family was given a $2 million settlement. I'm telling this story because those familiar with Deborah Danner's story may also be thinking about Eleanor Bumpers, David Prude, Kayla Moore, and Tanisha Anderson. The common thread linking all of their stories together, when police become involved in their mental health crises, it cost them their lives. According to the Washington Post, 1,655 people with mental illnesses have been shot and killed by the police since January 2015. In the United States, a mental health crisis can open you up to interactions with police instead of critically needed care. The provision of this essential mental and behavioral health care has progressed in fits and starts, but access among people of color has always trailed that of white people. State investment and support for mental and behavioral health care came about earliest in states with relatively high white populations. These psychiatric hospitals were a source of major controversy in the 1850s and 60s due to the abysmal treatment of patients, who were often tied up in chains and undernourished in dark, damp, and unsanitary cells. As we entered the mid-20th century, new hope bloomed for mental health treatment as the introduction of new antipsychotic medications collided with a vision of mental health care that didn't rely on state-run institutions, but rather community-based programming. The 1963 Community Mental Health Act transitioned responsibility for patients from the state to the federal government with the hope that a network of community mental health centers would overtake state-run psychiatric facilities. Unfortunately, this vision never received stable funding and a majority of these centers were never built. As we entered the late 20th century, we began to witness a new phase of behavioral health care, a system called deinstitutionalization, marked by moving mentally ill people out of care institutions and closing them, coupled with an increasingly punitive and all-encompassing approach to policing, especially for low-level crimes. In the late 20th century, policing exploded in both scope and punitiveness. The false broken windows theory of crime took aim at people described as panhandlers, drunks, addicts, rowdy teenagers, and the mentally ill. The police still often intervene in these so-called quality-of-life offenses with devastating consequences. Vinnie Cervantes, 
Director of Denver Alliance for Street Health Response and Advisory Board Member of the Denver Support Team Assisted Response Program, or STAR, says that this expansion of policing and the involvement of police in mental health crises poses a unique and traumatic consequences for individuals with behavioral health issues and unhoused communities, and does nothing to address the real underlying issues. So we have policies in Denver that say that it's illegal to sleep in your car, it's illegal to sleep in a tent, or be in a public right of way, or distribute food. And, you know, frankly, our organization breaks that law every single week when we distribute food to our unhoused community. But this is, you know, the nature of using a, a process of criminalization to address systemic problems that are behavioral health issues, social determinants of health in our community, where in addition to not addressing the issue itself, whether it's homelessness, whether it's substance use, whether it's mental health crisis, we're actually making those problems worse by including the element of criminalization. And so when we have unhoused folks on the street who are just being approached by police, they are resistant to that, that contact because it could mean they get a ticket for just trying to survive. City of Denver has actually argued against unhoused folks and their, their ability to sleep in a tent by saying your survival is not illegal. That was actually a court argument that our city gave. And so, you know, that, that kind of establishes the level of distrust, the level of violence that occurs when we say that we can arrest you, we can ticket you just for existing. But it heightens when we talk about the fact that, you know, the, the other possibilities of also being killed or um, in jail being killed. And we have many situations like that in Denver that have actually brought me to the work that I do now with some of the victims of that of that violence. But at the end of the day, you know, policing is not a solution to any of the behavioral health issues. It's not a solution to crime. It's not a solution to a lot of things, but especially not when people are in crisis, when people need help. And that that aspect that police are always looking for that kind of criminalized approach to addressing these issues is why people don't trust police. People don't seek help from police. And people aren't getting help from police when they do arrive. By deploying officers to handle issues of behavioral health, homelessness, and other nonviolent issues, we've in effect criminalized houselessness, addiction, poverty, and mental health crises. Some police departments are increasingly bogged down with mental health and homelessness related complaints, which they're unequipped to handle effectively. When we have a police response, that is an approach of criminalization. There's not a, an approach of support there. There's not an approach that these folks are trained to deal with folks in mental health crisis, to deal with folks um, who are overdosing, right? I don't even know if our police officers have Narcan on them, which is to reverse an overdose. So if they're the first response, we're not even sending the most appropriate response to those situations when we are in the midst of the largest overdose crisis in Colorado and in the country right now. And so we have this really inappropriate tool that is a catch-all tool for everything. Everything from neighborhood disputes to people wearing or not wearing masks in a store to, um, to very violent situations or some of those behavioral health or social determinants of health that occur in our community where police are this catch-all response and they're not equipped to do most of those things. Um, I think there was a study that um, came out of New York where they did, they uh, actually it was the New York Times, I believe, that did a study of policing across the country and they said that the vast majority of the time they spent is not on violent crime. It's on medical issues, it's on traffic tickets, and it's on mental and behavioral health crises. And I think it was something around 4% of their time is spent on things that can be considered violent crime. So it's a huge disparity. And, you know, that, you know, varies in different cities. In Denver, I imagine it's a little bit more time that they spend on things that can be considered violent crime. But nonetheless, that approach increases the opportunity for violence. Because again, when you run up to somebody and pull a gun on them and say, you better listen to me or else, that immediately triggers people, especially who are experiencing the mental and behavioral health issues, to into crisis. And so when we talk about people who are unhoused or people who are 
experiencing mental or behavioral health issues, people who are experiencing substance abuse issues, there is this huge level of stigma and shame associated with wanting to get help. And that is a huge barrier to getting people out of situations or getting people support or long-term um, structures of, of um, support because people are reluctant to actually get help for the fear that they will be looked down upon, for the fear that their families or communities will look down upon them. But when you add that element of policing, it also includes not just a stigma, but the aspect that you could also be arrested or ticketed if you try to seek help. And we think about that, especially with substance abuse issues, that if you are with somebody who's overdosing, there, there are a lot of people who are reluctant to call police before the fear that they would get a ticket as well as the person who is experiencing that overdose if they should survive. So the, the aspect of criminalization policing adds to that stigma, that kind of that shame that people experience because there is a strong level of shame that just we can't reconcile with because we don't have the structures in place to support people experiencing those situations. And, and that's a huge barrier to actually getting people help getting through to the systemic roots of these problems. And, as Vinny explains, the origins of policing in America and its relationship to the vestiges of slavery still impact the system today. When we talk about the origins of policing, the origins that they are designed as slave catchers in our country, that is the origins of policing. That has never drifted from what we know. To, to, to get away from that, it's still the same system of policing that was created in the South to, to police people who were enslaved. It was created in the North to police immigrant communities and labor workers. And it was created in the Southwest to police indigenous communities and hunt down indigenous folks in Texas. And so when we understand those origins of policing, we know that those biases, those sentiments haven't been removed from that system because it still very much enforces those elements of white supremacy. Victor Jones, Education Special Counsel at the Legal Defense Fund, adds that unfortunately, children are not immune from the impacts of the expansion of policing. As school resource officers, or SROs, have expanded their presence in schools, children of color and children with behavioral health issues and disabilities are put at disproportionate risk of encountering the school-to-prison pipeline. So the first set of school resource officers to emerge in this country, um, that, that predates um, back into the like, 1950s and late 1960s. And the original purpose of school resource officers or school police was to keep um, children safe from outside um, intrusions. But through various presidential administrations, um, there's been a federal investment in, um, in, in providing SROs to school districts. And so in the 90s, we saw a um, huge investment by the federal government um, a multi-million dollar investment by the federal government through grants provided by the Department of Education and through the Department of Justice to increase school policing in schools. And so that response came even more heightened in the advent of school shootings, right? And so once, you know, these matters started hitting national attention, like Columbine or Jonesboro in the uh, mid-1990s, that's when the response locally, as well as like from a federal level, um, was to increase funding to provide school districts with SROs. Now, the data on whether SROs actually do curb so-called deviant behaviors is inconclusive. There's no data that supports the, the idea that the presence of SROs will somehow reduce behavioral infractions. What the data is very clear on, though, however, 
is that the presence of SROs in schools um, results in um, black and brown children, as well as disabled children, particularly children with mental illness or with developmental conditions, more likely to become juvenile system involved for nonviolent offenses, right? And so to the extent that school districts have SROs, to the extent they have them, um, there should be clear agreements between the school district and the SRO on what their role is. And school resource officers under no circumstances should be acting in the place of disciplinarians, right? Because they don't have that training. Because the notion of militarizing children into compliance just doesn't work. The data isn't there. And the end result is that you have these really traumatic experiences where children with mental illness are having to encounter a mental health crisis, you know, that's not their fault, but they're being treated as if it is their fault by these people being SROs who don't have the, the skills and the tools to engage in proper de-escalation. It's clear that rather than invest in the infrastructure that could help aid individuals with behavioral health issues, the U.S. is relying on the carceral system as a form of health intervention. In fact, America's three largest psychiatric facilities are jails, which have well-documented histories of being discriminatory, abusive, and unfit for the administration of mental health. Rather than being met with critical care, understanding, and empathy, people are being met with violence and punitiveness while grappling with mental health challenges. And this system has been particularly dangerous for people of color. But when we talk about the racial disparities in that, that type of um, approach, we can look again to Denver where um, Marvin Booker, who was an unhoused man, substance use issues, he was brought in on a warrant to the Denver jail where he went back to his chair in the middle of a heated argument with the person at the desk in the jail. And the deputies took that as a violent act or, or a threatening act and they acted they killed him. And there's a huge conspiracy around that, that one murder in our jail that brought a lot of national attention and that happened in 2012. And because we did not hold those officers accountable in that very racialized incident of killing a black man who was just walking back to his chair, we had another man who was killed in 2015, Michael Marshall, also unhoused, also a black man, also mental health issues, who experienced a schizophrenic episode because he lost his Bible in a hotel that he was staying at. And so he was arrested for trespassing because again, police have that element that if we're not here, if we're here, it's because something has illegal has happened or something that we want to police. And so he was arrested for trespassing because of his schizophrenic episode. And he was taken to the jail and killed much in the way that Marvin Booker was. And this is these are just two examples in series of violence against our black community here in Denver. It extends to our indigenous community as well. And that aspect of policies that criminalize homelessness, criminalize mental health, criminalize substance use is so ironic given the history of displacement and colonization of this land where indigenous people, especially black folks, are disproportionately criminalized by those policies. And Victor illustrates just how harmful this system can be, especially for children. People who are, um, people who have a mental illness who encounter um, the police are um, exposed to a host of consequences from that. Um, one of them is, is, is obvious, like bodily injury and sometimes death. Um, we've seen instances where police have been called um, to um, a person with a mental illness in response to maybe a welfare check or because someone may feel threatened by that person. 
And because the officer doesn't have the understanding that this person has a um, mental illness and may be experiencing an episode or a symptom of their mental illness, they will um, respond as if the person is being intentionally violent. They will respond as if the person is being aggressive. So one of the big cases that comes to mind is actually um, that of um, Michelle Cousseau, whose niece is actually a really good friend of mine. And this was a Black woman in um, Arizona whose mother called the police to conduct a welfare check um, because Michelle had been struggling with mental illness. And when the police showed up, she was caught off guard. Um, she was alarmed. And so she had a bat to protect herself. And the police responded to her having a bat by shooting her and killing her. And so, you know, there are real life consequences to calling the police on, on people with mental illness. And that should always be kept in mind. I think another consequence is that it exposes particularly children um, to the juvenile system. And we see this a lot in the context of schools where there might be school resource officers in the building. There may be a child with what's called a non-apparent disability. That child may have autism spectrum disorder or a emotional mental health condition such as anxiety or attention deficit hyperactive disorder. And so they may be experiencing um, an episode in school. And so rather than providing clinically appropriate measures like crisis intervention, like crisis stabilization, bringing in a school counselor or social worker who's trained in de-escalation, rather than resorting to those methods, um, school districts throughout the country will oftentimes utilize SROs to calm down these children. And of course, what ends up happening is um, these children at the sight of an officer are often afraid. Um, and then the officer will um, engage in some impermissible seclusion or restraint tactic in which children are held up. So our current system, built upon a legacy of increasing punitiveness and a reliance on jails as a form of healthcare, is not working to help those who deal with mental health challenges. It's actually exacerbating these issues and in the process, acting as a violent signal that it's not okay to have a mental health issue, to have unstable housing, to be neurodivergent, to have a disability, or to be grappling with addiction. Instead of relying on a carceral system that can't deliver adequate help to those in need, we need to focus on addressing the root causes of these issues and creating a system that prioritizes the health and safety of a community. One way we can start to do that is by looking to alternatives to calling 911 when someone is in the grips of a mental health crisis. Launched on June 1st, 2020, in the middle of the George Floyd protests that launched a nationwide racial reckoning, Denver's STAR program sends emergency response teams that includes EMTs and behavioral health clinicians to engage with individuals experiencing mental distress, homelessness, addiction, and poverty. STAR, where Vinny acts as an advisory board member, is one model of what programs that have trained clinicians and EMTs to respond to behavioral health episodes instead of police can look like. So we brought this program to the city of Denver, but we worked initially with the police because um, there are two different efforts that were happening, a community effort and a police effort. And because we knew that they would have access to 911, and because they knew that, or we knew that they they would have the resources, we ended up being at that table, and we helped design this program. 
But after the pilot launched on June 1st of 2020, there was such a groundswell of community demand to say, we want the community to lead this program. And so Dasher and my organization were chosen as the community facilitator, given that we have done so much to drive this program. But STAR sends a mental health clinician from WellPower and a paramedic from Denver Health to 911 calls. And they typically, again, involve low-level mental health issues, um, substance use issues, and uh, issues related to homelessness. The primary calls have been calls for trespassing or unwanted persons, which is people calling and saying, there's somebody who's unhoused here, we don't want them here, which is not a reason to call 911 in my mind, but that is what STAR is mostly responding to. The second highest response they have is wellness checks as related to especially mental health and um, sentiments of self-harm. So STAR is showing up to those two issues primarily. And it has been very successful as a program. Uh, Stanford did a study of the first six months of the pilot and the study said that the, in areas that STAR is serving, crime is being reduced by 35% and the cost of a STAR response versus a police response is about one fourth the cost. So it's about you know four times the cost of STAR to send a police officer to these very same situations. So it's not only cost effective, but it's proving to reduce crime, but there's some nuance to that because again, a lot of the things that STAR is addressing isn't crime in the sense of the community or the perspective of the community because it's just people trying to exist. But um, you know it's proven very successful there are a lot of uh, things that we would desire of STAR, a lot of ways that it is um, falling short of the original vision that we had as a community. And so we're trying to navigate that right now as we kind of deal with the city co-opting this program and drifting it more towards policing where it should not have been anywhere near policing. And when we talk about divesting from police in the context of mental health, this includes our schools as well. Instead of deploying officers to discipline children, we need to be looking at increasing the number of counselors who can assist students with their needs. When we talk about like, well, why is it that, you know, there isn't much investment in schools or in communities um, in providing these home and community-based mental health services? Um, I would recommend that people check out the ACLU's report, um, Counselors Not Cops. And they talk about how um, throughout the country, there's a disproportionate ratio of the number of school social workers or psychologists in comparison to SROs, right? And so remember, I mentioned particularly in response to school shootings, there's just been this heavy, heavy, heavy investment on militarizing schools. And only recently have we, as a, as a society, come to realize that the more appropriate response is to instead provide these mental health services through social workers, through counselors, um, through crisis stabilization centers, through crisis interventionists, um, and that those are the better um, uh, methods or the more appropriate methods for responding to the situation. And when we talk about mental health services, at least from a child standpoint, that includes um, psychosocial rehabilitation. These are all what we call home and community-based mental health services. it's important to make sure that these services are being provided um, in the child's community rather than segregated in a juvenile detention center or in a um, psychiatric facility where they're taken out of their community, where they're segregated. And so um, having um, psychosocial rehab um, for some children, applied behavioral analysis, ABA therapy is really great. Um, having um, basic talk therapy where they can just talk to someone to process their emotions. Um, All of these things are proven to not only keep children in school, but um, allow them to foster important relationships in their life, 
um, allow them to have a positive sense of self-worth and image and, um, you know, overall result in like successful academic outcomes and a higher quality of life when they become adults. A brief authored by LDF in partnership with Bazelon, Center for Mental Health Law, notes that ultimately we need to work towards robust community-based health services that are culturally competent and include clinicians and mental health services, but also non-clinical services like supportive housing, peer support, and supported employment. We can work towards this vision by speaking up and getting involved in our community. So that is one of the biggest things. Talk to your neighborhood, talk to your community, get into the um, the registered neighborhood organizations where a lot of uh, political and social capital is being used to make decisions around homelessness, around policing. They are huge allies for the police. And so getting into those spaces and really reclaiming them as neighborhood spaces would be important for folks who are interested in getting involved. Um, then I would say identify the organizations who are doing work in that realm already. You know, we have a lot of work that's replicated in communities because people want to get involved. They don't do the work to look at who's doing it around them. So look at who's doing the work in your community, whether it's a harm reduction type program, a, a community-based homeless uh, organization that is serving unhoused folks or working with unhoused folks, um, and mental health and behavioral health organizations. But that comes with the asterisk that a lot of these big mental and behavioral health organizations are also um, very harmful and uh, violent, uh, as well as the police. And so that is also something to, to consider. And if it doesn't exist where you have an alternative option than these large agencies, then it's worth you know partnering with your community, with your neighbor, neighbors to try to create one. This has been another episode of Justice Above All. To keep up with the latest research from the Thurgood Marshall Institute, go to www.tminstituteldf.org. To keep up with the work of LDF and to learn more about our Alternatives to Policing Brief, co-authored with Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law, go to www.naacpldf.org. This podcast is produced by Kesey Deveni and Jackie O'Neill and edited by Kesey Deveni. Thank you to Victor Jones and Vinnie Cervantes for sitting down and speaking with us. And thank you for listening.